0: everybody, welcome to the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts, I'm Chris Castor-Rappel, and with me is SCG leaderboard mainstay, Collins Mullen. Hey Collins. What's up? Not I'm much. ready to
1: talk about some magic.
0: Yeah, yeah, let's do it. We got a lot to talk about. Uh, oh so yeah. Today we're going to obviously talk about the PT, since that happened just a couple of days ago. Standard and Limited. And then I think you've got a lot to say about Modern, right?
1: Yeah. Um, so, right. The exciting thing from last weekend was definitely the Pro Tour. Um, it's always fun, you know, following that and seeing what crazy things happen there. Um, and uh, I am also testing for SCG Syracuse that's coming up uh, this weekend. And I've been playing a lot of Modern. And I've got some exciting stuff that i can probably bring to the table here so that's that look forward to that
0: yeah i am looking forward to that because i have no idea what that stuff is so so that's exciting
1: yeah it's gonna be good
0: <laughs> cool cool and then if we have time at the end i think uh, there's just some some kind of interesting stuff that happened at the pt that i'd like to talk about uh if, if we have time you know the the misplay in the top eight and and a couple of other just kind of emotional interesting things that i, I think are really important to magic in general um, yeah,
1: absolutely. Those things are always kind of the best things to talk about. Like, you know, we can talk about, like, deck lists and, um, you know, what's doing well in the metagame, like, you know, as much as we can. But I think for me, at least, the uh, one of the things I really enjoy on Magic are is kind of like the human element of the tournaments. Um, you know, I go to a lot of tournaments, I see a lot of people, um, and... You know, uh, I think one of the things that I enjoy more than anything else is just kind of like hearing the stories that are a little more emotionally charged than just like, you know, some top decks or some plays or whatever, you know. So this, you know, this was a good PT for that. I think that a lot of interesting things happened. And yeah, I think yeah. that was the most exciting thing for me, at least. Well, of the week. well, actually, since we got that that
0: intro to it, what, you want to just talk about that stuff right now, maybe?
1: Um. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that everybody's heard about it by now, but if you haven't, um, in the semifinals, PV was playing against Yang Sun, and, uh, they were in game five, so it was the deciding game of the match, deciding who gets to go into the finals and potentially win the Pro Tour, and PV's opponent had a Hazoret in play and a three damage burn spell in hand, and his opponent was at 11. And for turn, he drew a second 3 damage burn spell. And had enough mana to cast it. And he got very excited. And he immediately went to combat and turned his Hazorette sideways. And Hazaret can't attack if you have <laughs> two or more cards in your hand. Um, so essentially the consequences of that was uh, he moved to the point in the game where... He has to declare his attackers, and once you're at that point in the game, it's kind of too late to do anything. Yeah, you, even if those burn spells are you have were to make instant. that decision right then. Right, right. So he he attacked this guy, which was an illegal play, and when a judge intervenes, there they're going to back up to the point at which you made the illegal play. Mm-hmm. So they're going to back up at the point to the point at which you need to declare your attackers. Right. <laughs> right. So he has no time to cast these sorcery burn spells in his hand. And he can't activate Hazoret's ability to throw one away to deal the damage because that's A, not enough damage, and B, he, he doesn't just doesn't have priority. priority to do that right. um, before he declares his attackers. So essentially he he kind of jumped the gun a little bit, and the consequence of that was just missing lethal on that turn. He was not able to attack with his Hazoret and went on to lose the game from there. And But it was very... I think it's very interesting to watch just kind of like the immediate reaction that he had to the realization that he had made a mistake. He. Uh, I mean, my
0: heart snapped a little bit when oh, yeah. I was watching Me too, that. Oh, yeah, for sure,
1: for uh, sure. When uh, just he, he just had a, like a very visible reaction to it. Like he threw away his headset and he just kind of like hit the table a couple times. But like after that initial like burst of emotion, he was just like immediately back mm-hmm. in the game, took a deep breath and was just like, okay, how can I recover from here and still try to win this game?
0: Right, right. Like, he's...
1: And, and so that's super, that super impressive. That
0: sure. Impressive. Like, after that, then you just have to go, okay, I'm in this game state now that shouldn't be, but this is where I found myself. Like, yeah. how can I use these spells now that they're not killing my opponent?
1: So <laughs> Right, right. Um, yeah, and I think that it's just like, you know, magic's hard. <laughs> yeah. I think that it's just... So easy as like a spectator who's never been in a position like that and never made like a really critical error at such an uh, important match to just be like, oh, you know, this guy doesn't know what's going on. How did he even get here? Blah, blah, blah. I but think how that, many of us
0: have been on the last right. turn of game five you know, in the PT semis before? You know, it's it's tough, man. Magic is really hard.
1: It, it I think that it just kind of... Uh, illustrates how such a tiny decision in Magic can make such a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Like he made this like tiny decision to just go ahead and turn his creature sideways, and that small action was uh, enough to completely change the direction of the game, right? And yeah. The result of the game.
0: And and Obviously. I have, I I think I have some very specific sympathy for him here um because i i mean you've you've watched me play like i i try to play as tight as i can and when i'm locked in i usually i usually play pretty well but i like i i mean i have adult add and i have focusing problems and sometimes i just don't process every single thing that's happening on the board or every single thing that i should know about my opponent's hand and i make you know obvious errors sometimes and and you know, usually when I haven't had enough to eat or I haven't, you know, exercised that day to make my brain focus or whatever. But that's, you know, that's exactly the kind of mistake that I have made in the past. And it is, it's gut-wrenching when, you, you know, you realize it right afterward. And it's, I, like, like, I have all of these heuristics for gameplay. And one of those is, you know, attack with your creatures, then play your spells. And it's, a lot of times it is difficult for me to take a breath. And you know, know when to disobey the heuristic, and that's exactly. Right. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if I would ever try to attack with my hazard exactly, but that's really the type of mistake that I have made in in serious events, and and never at that level certainly. But I, I have a lot of sympathy for him.
1: Yeah, and I think that your point on the heuristics is it's it's pretty good because uh, I think that he was clearly just following that like very basic magic heuristic of attack with your creatures play your spells right yeah that's just like the muscle normal memory. muscle memory thing that you do and uh i think that he he like his brain went into a mode of i have it here i just need to make sure that i just like do everything appropriately
0: mm-hmm.
1: what's the appropriate thing to do throughout my magic playing career is <laughs> attack first right right but in this one instance, these cards are a little different, and I, I see how it would be very easy to just kind of screw up from there. Yeah. But I um, mean,
0: you know, still a great run. And, oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. Um, I, I hope we see more of him. He was a fun player to watch. I mean the, the goofy right. like tilting people by slow rolling his draws and stuff, like I know a lot of people didn't really appreciate <laughs> that by the 50th time that I thought of. but yeah like he just seems like a goofy, fun guy that I'm, I'm pretty into seeing again.:
1: Yeah, definitely a character. For sure. Um, and, you know his, you know, his, his Twitter he's handle. He's clearly right? proven himself to be able to um, hang with the best up there. So yeah. I'm, I'm sure we'll see more of him over the course of the following years. And you know, you know what his Twitter handle is, right? What is it? It's at Walking By. Oh, that's so. <laughs> funny. I had heard, yeah, I had seen some stuff on Twitter about how he. He claimed to be a walking by, and then he, like, tweeted after punting the pro tour. He's like, well, still walking <laughs> by. To we're still <laughs> yeah. walking by. Yeah, that's funny.
0: So, shitty situation, but...
1: Yeah, but um, just kind of a very human situation, Definitely. right? And I think that that's just an important thing to have in uh, in Magic. So, And, and I think uh, we've seen
0: a lot of that kind of stuff, you know, recently in the last couple of PTs. Like, I mean, Calcano's top eight... At Almancat was just I don't know like it was really moving to watch. I thought it like I watched him play for a very long time. He's never quite gotten there, and
1: yeah, but he's just always been like a character. Yeah, in,
0: just a cool guy. Like he's
1: at all the tournaments, right? You know, yeah. he's just always there. So um, he's he's become a recognizable face that like even though he hasn't like had that top eight yet, he's like everybody knows who he is. Yeah. Um,
0: and, and it was just so everybody cool was to see. invested in it for sure. And it was really cool to see how important it was to him you know he could barely talk when they were interviewing him when he made it and i don't know just yeah, like yeah. Th- this game is it, it's really important like i i don't play at that level but i most of my closest friends i've met through magic and it's made a huge difference in my life so i don't know it's just a big thing
1: yeah I, it the game means a lot to a lot of people and it, I, yeah, I think that it's just, you know, it's good to have that reminder every once in a while of like, wow, this is this is just kind of a snapshot into what all these people have dedicated their kind of their whole lives to. Yeah. Right. And then it's finally coming to a culmination of some sort of result or something that just like embodies what it means to them and, and embodies like kind of the the relief of like being able to get there and have that success. It just means a ton. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Did you did you catch that uh,
1: LSV Chion segment that they did? Um, I actually did not. Yeah, um, but I'd, I'd be happy to hear about it for sure.
0: I mean, it, you know, it was just a brief look. You know, LSV's transitioning back to being a full time player. Chion uh, is transitioning over to work at Wizards. Just a really cool look at their friendship over time, and and you could tell like how much experiencing magic together meant to uh, meant to Paul. In particular, because LSV was like clearly it meant a lot to to, to Luis, but he was mostly cracking jokes and, and racking on Paul the whole time. But yeah, just just really fun to watch, and you know, fun to hear some stories like how uh, at one point LSV was was Chion's barn and was part of the Chi entourage when Cheon was the one winning tournaments early on. But I don't know, cool, right? Cool to have that history to the game and those sort of always present individuals
1: yeah right and i think that that's like just a large part of what makes like kind of like viewing magic interesting is it's not you know it a large part of it is just like having those recognizable faces and being able to connect with them like even if you don't know them that well right right just being able to like follow the storylines and be invested in that stuff yeah um and yeah i mean lsv and, and qian are they're definitely kind of like embody that right they were kind of uh, at least in my experience like i know that there were a lot of people before that but they were kind of like the first people that i the first like names that i started to recognize when i started getting good at magic right and mm-hmm. that because that was like i started playing magic in like theros block right and uh, i just remember lc being like one of those names that uh, everybody was kind of like just throwing around at my local game store when i start first started playing so he was, like, you know, kind of one of the first people that I just kind of, like, picked up on, like, as somebody who wasn't familiar with the scene, really. Um, I was just able to kind of, like, be like, oh, okay, yeah, LSV is, like, you know, just, like, one of the pros right now, right? So it, wouldn't it be cool to see what he's up to and what he's doing? And then, you know, like, two years later, he wins three, or he top hits three pre- Pro Tours in a row, and it's just kind of like, oh, <laughs> all right. <You>
0: know? <laughs> oh, so that's, those are the heights that a person can reach. Okay. Yeah.
1: Right, yeah, for sure. Um, and then kind of like the other story you are in right now is Paulo Vitor. Yeah, good lord. Um, did, did he pro, he top eight the last Pro Tour too, right?
0: Uh, no, uh, he top eighted...
1: Or one of them recently before yeah, this one. Yeah,
0: a couple of PTs ago. I, I'm not remembering. It wasn't Cat, but it was one of the Kaladesh ones, uh, and now I don't remember. Um, but yeah, man, yeah. 12, 12 top eights, two wins. That's that's something
1: (laughs) yeah that's uh he's definitely kind of like putting his name up there um i've always kind of had him in my personal top three Mm -hmm. um so i think that he's just really kind of like continuing that trend and uh very excited to see kind of where he takes things you know yeah Um, because he's he's like at that point where he's just so ridiculously good and has such ridiculous success that uh He's kind of, like, already hit pretty much all of the benchmarks, but now it's just kind of, like, how far can he take it, right? Right. You know?
0: Well, this is his first player of the year, too, so that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that is pretty cool. And you know, I'm excited, I'm excited about that. I've always, I've always been a pretty big fan of P.E.V. Of um, yeah. the, uh, the, the videos on YouTube that he's thrown up have been very insightful and very good, I yeah, think.
0: Yeah, they're uh, excellent, months, and so they're, they don't waste time. They're four minutes long, like... Yeah, watch them. It's, it's yeah. worth the time. I
1: think we need more of that, honestly. I think that that's just kind of like an untapped resource of magic content that that people that PV is uh, and a couple other channel fire people are a channel fireball people are starting to tap into a little bit. It's just like those like YouTube clips of just the kind of them talking about their experience, right? Or them talking about just like a small tactic or whatever in magic or something. Um, yeah. Just like short to the point, easily digestible. Either we talking about like gameplay itself or just like tournament experience. And I, and I think that all of those things are very interesting.
0: Yeah, I'd really like for that to continue. Really cool that, that, you know, discussion of best players of all time is a really interesting one. I think that PV's sort of objective play and deck building and, and selection and that sort of thing, I would argue that it is at the highest objective level. You know, perfect player playing at 100% and his overall is at like 92% or something like that, which is right. insane.
1: Yeah, right, right.
0: But but it's hard to know, like, what are the metrics here? Because like Kai won seven Pro Tours. He had like an 80% win percentage <laughs> in top eights. So, you know, even if he was only playing at like 85% total or even 80% total, given the information that was available to him, because this was pre-internet like internet almost, that that is absolutely incredible, and he just crushed people. So relative to the Magic playing at the time, Kai's Kai's record is just, just insane, but I think PV now is a stronger objective player, but that's also because he just has a lot more resources. He's got more teammates, more access to information, Magic theory is in a better place, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I think that also kind of goes along the lines of um, Magic's just harder now, right? It, the fact that he's having this success in kind of like the current era is pretty insane, honestly. It is, um, yeah. Um, very interesting, for sure. So definitely, I guess um, we should
0: talk about the event the event that he won and his deck and, and everybody else's deck, which were also his deck.
1: Yeah, uh, right, so the I guess the highlight of the tournament and... I I guess I kind of want to throw in a little bit of a uh, call to hear (laughs) what was uh, mono-red, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we Uh, we
0: definitely got that right.
1: Yeah, like, you know, in the last podcast, I was talking about how you're probably going to see a lot of mono-red, and sure enough, the deck just kind of dominated the entire tournament, right? Yep. And we kind of, like, were able to see that, like, as soon as the constructed rounds start, right? Because they threw up the percentages of, the, the game one deck percentage, and Mono red was just like easily the, the highest represented deck at the tournament. Um,
0: right, 25% almost.
1: Right, and, uh, and then going into day two, it, it had the highest conversion rate into day two, which is sometimes not something that you always see with like the best deck or whatever. Well,
0: I think, um, I think Black Green Constrictor so... had a slightly higher conversion rate. Uh, oh, but, did it? Okay. But only very slightly. Yeah. So I've got a I've got a spreadsheet uh, here from from that Lovejans put together oh, at go. at Kelvindl. but but I mean yeah red just like not only was overrepresented but it it absolutely did perform and I think the only reason that Black Green Constrictor performed is because it really does have a slightly positive matchup against most of the the mono red decks.
1: Yes, for sure. Yeah, I think that uh, Constrictor was probably the best metagame choice for this tournament. Just mm-hmm. um, not something that I saw coming. I, I I didn't recognize how good of a matchup Black Green had against the red decks in particular. Yeah, and Black Green had kind of always kind of been just kind of like one of those fringe decks that I had like played against in tournaments, but um, wasn't really anticipating being just like such a good call for a red metagame, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, but you know, sure enough. Uh, people are talking about black green just kind of like being the deck moving forward of like if you want to beat red, then you should be playing black green.
0: Yeah, and I don't think that's um, a terrible idea. Between Kalitas, so, Liliana, uh, Walking Ballista, efficient removal. I, I mean, there's there's a lot of resources in the deck.
1: The problem yeah, is, yeah. De-
0: so the deck has like a
1: inherently powerful game plan of like the Winding Constrictor and the Walking Ballista and then the other counter elements of, uh, like, that can turn into a very aggressive beatdown strategy and a very proactive game plan, right? But at the same time, you have just so many bullets in the main deck against red decks. You've yeah. got the Lilianas, you've got um, Kalidas, as you said, and then you've got uh, Walking Ballistas, and all of those are just pretty insane against the red deck and not something that they're very prepared to face against uh, in a game one,
0: right, right, definitely not. And, and because their deck changes for game two and three, you know, you're in, you're at a really big advantage if your fatal pushes and stuff are in your main deck rather than bringing them in when they're bringing in glory bringers or whatever. So, so, and and green black is able to do that.
1: Yeah, for sure. Just kind of like a very resilient deck in terms of game plan, right? You can you can uh, post board configure deck to be more controlling or postboard board configure deck to be more aggressive which is, uh, in Standard, just like a very useful tool to have under your belt, right? Because a lot a, a lot of success in Standard comes from understanding those matchups and understanding the role that you need to play. Um, and uh, uh, when you have access to that, then it just gives you so much flexibility in uh, kind of a, a more open metagame, right?
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the strengths of the mono-red deck, too because not only can it board up to two different speeds i mean you don't know how they board it exactly and you don't know exactly which half of their deck they drew do they have a double glory bringer hand that's very different from if they happen to draw the one drops that are still in their deck into on crop crasher so that's i think that's part of the challenge of of fighting against the mono red deck
1: yeah the mono red deck kind of does the same thing of like they have different game plans post-board that you kind of need to be aware of and I, I would suspect that the people who had more success in this tournament were the people who really understood exactly what kind of game plan each deck is going to have post-board in each matchup, right? Like, if, if I'm a black-green player, I'm going to need to know what tendencies my red opponent is going to have post-board against me. Are they going to try to get under me? Or are they going to try to go over me? You just kind of need to know that stuff. And I, we saw that a lot before in the... The Mardu Vehicles deck that existed in kind of the past format, uh, where they had this like huge Planeswalker, big postboard plan, and it's just that's just something that you had to know about in order to ever beat that deck in a tournament. Because yep. uh, if you went into a postboard game without the knowledge that they were doing that, then they're just going to crush you, right? So sure. you had to know that that was going to be the case. So you like you would see like as a black black green. Player playing against a a Mardu player, I would end up like cutting down on fatal pushes and uh, bringing in like Hydras and uh, Planeswalker removal spells and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And because if you if you like went all in on like all right, I'm going to need to deal with their aggressive stuff, and then they're playing all these Planeswalkers, you're just going to be completely unprepared. So I think that we're seeing something a little similar in the red deck where. They have this like bigger game plan of glory bringers and chandras and all this stuff and if your plan against them post board is like bringing a bunch of Magnus rays yeah it's not, not gonna, gonna go so well the chandras yeah. defeat so.
0: does work pretty well regardless of the plan they're on ah uh, yeah that, i mean that if you wanna if you wanna
1: you know have a card that's gonna kill anything out of the red deck then that's that's your t- toy for sure
0: yeah so i and i think i mean we watched pv get pretty lucky a couple of times pretty unlucky a couple of times but he definitely Got there really hard in order to win the tournament, but I think he did set himself yeah. up really well. I, I I just think that his seventy five was pretty great for this tournament. I think having the 24, 24 lands was was excellent. I would certainly not play less than twenty three in my main deck because you don't really you don't flood out, man. You've got Kenra's, you've got like a lot of these games were decided by is he going to draw another land so that he can throw his last Raminap Ruins at his opponent. So. I, I think lands are just real good in this deck.
1: Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, I, there, those are the two things that I've seen out of his deck that I really liked, was the just the 24 main deck lands. Uh, I think that just kind of demonstrated a knowledge about how uh, he, he knew his deck well enough that he just kind of wanted all these lands, right? Yep. And his, his deck had the resiliency to go along. And by long, I mean uh, have the reach to be able to finish off the game in in the later stages of the game, right? Yeah. Um, because and the because the primary reason for a lot of these like mono red deck mono red decks that have existed in the past to not run many lands is because you just can't afford to draw those extra lands, right? Because when you do, that means you just don't have the gas to close the game out, and you're just going to lose from there. But with this case, with with this deck, it's just that's just not the case. Uh, you're fine drawing extra lands. Because you need to, you just have all these things to do with your mana, be that let's sacrifice your lands for damage or, you know, whatever. So, I mean, I, I've played a lot of mono red, and I think one thing that people kind of have to get over, in deck building
0: in general, including when, when building limited decks and stuff, it's not that, oh no, I have to cut another spell because I gotta fit this land in. You get to run 24 lands in this deck. Like, that's that's a huge bonus to like make your chances of hitting that third land so much higher. Like, that's, that's good. That's so helpful. Like, getting to cut a spell for a land without having to worry about drawing too many lands. And it, it's psychologically, because it's like, well, there's one extra, you know, burn spell. Like, that's one more burn <laughs> spell in my deck. Like, that's good, right? Cutting this is hard. Like, like I totally that. Yeah, we would play that. with all of our toys. Yeah, yeah. And mountains are not <laughs> toys, you know?
1: but... But
0: right. not having the mountain is so crippling. And we saw so many matches decided by one person missing their third land drop and then the other person playing their on-crop crasher, and then they could never lose at that point. So, yeah, I think just the the fact that this deck can run a healthy amount of lands is so helpful to it.
1: Yeah, and the other thing that I saw out of PV's deck in particular was he just had such a good plan for the mirror match. Yep.
0: Uh, yeah, I think the that like, or... if we were
1: looking at all the decks... Uh, I think that he, if we're looking at all the side wars in particular, his post-war plan against the mirror in particular was just very solid. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull up his deck list now so that I can actually talk through that. But
0: Yeah. I, I think uh, the P and LR's were very, very key. And they just, every time I saw him cast one... Yeah,
1: they... so he's got... Uh, right, he's got just so many cards that are independently very, very strong in the mirror. He's got the two Chandra's Defeat that we were talking about... Mm-hmm. Two Aether Sphere Harvesters, which without an upgrade, I just don't know how Mono Red deck beats, you know? <laughs> um, and he's got two Savage Alliance, was the other card that was very interesting. So Savage Alliance, I think, was like a, a a pretty sweet tech of being able to, if your opponent is on like two X1s and then a Oncrop Crasher, right, you could just for four mana just c- completely clear their board and then from that point on you should just be so far ahead. Some people were talking about how uh, maybe four Hazorette is kind of the answer, um, just because of how dominating that card is once you get it into play and start yeah. attacking with it. It's true. Um, it is dominating. People were talking about how the mirrors are like super interesting and intricate and pretty skill intensive, except for when one side has a Hazorette and the other side doesn't, and yeah. then it's just over. And uh, in my experience playing with that deck, that's just been true every time. Yeah. Um, is that If somebody resolves a Hazorette and gets to attack with it, then... They win, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so which is kind of an unfortunate thing to have in like your tier one standard deck or whatever. Um, just having some number, some percentage of games coming down to uh, I had it and you didn't. Um, it's not really what you want right. out of a healthy tier one deck, but I mean, there you have it.
0: But you're also striking a balance there. You know, if you're running the four Hazards. How big can you take your deck against your mono red opponent? If you have a bunch of three mana cards in your hand, your hazard becomes a lot worse. You know, you've at least got to figure out what, what's the balance of mana costs you're, you're striking there. You can't cut more. You know, most people don't cut more than, like, the four village messenger as far as one drops go, but then it's difficult to make cuts after that without making your deck really top-heavy. So, you know, it, it at least requires some thoughtfulness in in your sideboarding plan
1: yes for sure yeah and then the other thing that was interesting out of PVZ deck was the main deck inclusion of the chandras um yeah just kind of knowing that like he's playing the main deck 24 lands so might as well have just a slightly bigger late game uh that can close out some games so yeah just to me it just looks like the best 75 that was at that tournament and I'm, I'm honestly just kind of not surprised that it won in hindsight but you know there you go
0: yeah, I mean, he set himself up to get lucky. He got lucky when he had to, and his deck performed just as it was supposed to. So, Except for in those right. those first two games uh, in the quarters. Right,
1: yeah. Well, you know, you can't always win. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, just if we're going to talk about the standard format a little bit more, um, I've been playing uh, some red-black, like the red-black mid-range deck that's like all Mythic Rares, the Lianas, and Chandra's, and Kalidases and stuff, which I think... Oh, yeah. You know if the you know the two decks that people are playing to sort of beat the mono red deck that are strong, just regular standard decks are green, black, constrictor, and zombies. So, I've been liking the red, black deck because it's so removal heavy that it's actively good against all three of those decks. The problem that I've found with it is I'm running 26 lands and need to make all of my land drops, uh, and so you know, and I've adjusted the mana base, like the mana bases. That are the sort of stock ones are just all of the dual lands and some some ether hubs. And then your lands are just so <laughs> awkward because the dual lands are not that Whoa. good. So I've, I've subbed in some basics right, for right, some right. of those. And, and it's helped the lands not come into play tapped at such awkward times. But yep. yeah, man, I, I think it's just like a fact of standard is playing multiple colors. Both have to draw the raw number of lands that you need to be casting a 5 drop on turn 5. And you need to... Draw the right lands so that you can cast your removal spells on your removal turns and then cast your planeswalker on turn four and then cast your glory bringer or your goblin dark dwellers on turn five. And boy, that's that's not easy in standard, especially in a not blue deck. So, I playing this deck like this, a super removal heavy mid range deck, when the draws are, are fine, the deck is really good. But it just naturally lends itself to really wonky mana draws, or, or just you draw all your top end, or something like that. And so I'm not not totally sure if like that's the answer to the
1: format, but that's just something that I've noticed about standard in general. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, interact early and often. I think is the one yeah. of the better solutions here. You know what I mean? And, so, and play play a uh, single color deck if you can manage it. Yes, yeah. Basics are great. Like, people really underestimate how awesome basic lands are, yeah. so, uh, you know, even even in your your multicolored, like, big deck or whatever, you just, sometimes you just, like, want a really clean, untapped land late in the game, and that's, it's hard to come by with, particularly in standard, uh, like, the man, the main bases as they currently are with all of the dual lands and stuff, yeah. so. Sometimes you just want a basic, <laughs>
0: Right. Or sometimes you draw your lands in the right order and just all of your lands come into play tapped and it feels, uh, come into play untapped and it feels incredible. But yeah, it's very, very mm-hmm. draw dependent. So I don't know what, you know, if I had a big standard tournament coming up soon, I don't know exactly what I would play right now.
1: I would definitely lean towards playing Black Green personally, yeah. uh, just because I've played a lot of Black Green in the past. I'm very familiar with that deck and it seems like, Right now, it's very well positioned. So, I, I I would expect that to have the most success going forward. Um, and I, I think that I would probably just want to play that as as much as I can. So um, you're not too worried going about to Minneapolis. You're not too
0: worried not too about worried the about zombies. What? The zombies matchup with that deck.
1: Because... No, I think the zombies matchup is uh, fine, if not okay. good, um, just because of the the main deck Liliana's and the Kalidas, You just have so many. Uh, things that match up very well against what they're doing there. Um, walking Ballista and the Winding Constrictor is very hard for them to beat if you have enough mana. Just a ton of stuff that you have access to that uh, is really tough for them to grind through. Right. Um, like, you can definitely get run over by their nut draw of um, just kind of, like, curving out into Liliana's Masteries and just having creatures that are large. But uh, I, I definitely think that that matchup is is fine, if not favored. Um for you gotcha so
0: so yeah. and and you probably benefit playing black green or another mid-range deck you probably benefit by the way so i'm looking at the the magic online ptq which happened during the pro tour um and kind yeah. of kind of bizarrely had zero mono red decks in the top eight um but uh-huh. all of these top eight yeah. decks were are very clearly warped around battling mono red there's there's three zombie yeah. decks and they've all got kalitas in the main deck uh cut a couple of liliana's masteries. Uh, to fit those in, and they're, they're very heavy on, on the removal spells. They didn't really trim on those. Black Green made it, and that's also, you know, running a couple of Liliana The Last Hope and Kalita's mm-hmm. main deck. And and so, yeah, like, a lot of these decks are very, very much responding to the mono-red deck. I, like, like I, I have seen posts and stuff, these Sky is Falling posts, because there's so much mono-red at the Pro Tour, but the deck is <laughs> very beatable. Yeah. So I, I just don't, like, it, it's a powerful linear strategy that the cards exist in standard to fight against it. And so, yeah, so play them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like the Pro Tour just has that effect always, is that people are always going to look at the decks that did very well at the Pro Tour, and have that kind of, the guy's falling mentality about it, but mm-hmm. I would be surprised if Monored continues the dominance that it has going forward, just because the metagame is very intelligent and knows how to shift now. Yeah. And yeah. I do not think that Monored is one of those it's, way too it's powerful not decks Marvel. that needs to get banned or anything. Like yeah. it's not Marvel, it's not Saheeli Rai, it doesn't have this like instant win button. You have to win by playing magic. You know what I mean? Um you still have to play creatures and attack and and that is something that can be disrupted if you know, if your opponents bring the tools that they need to. And if people start bringing the tools that they need to, then, you know, there we are.
0: Yep. Yeah, this um yeah, this I, I really like this goofy mono black Eldrazi deck in the top eight the the four Lilianas four gifted Aetherborn some Eldrazi some Kalidas some removal spells um yeah like like there's cool decks that open up because you get to run these spells that you know like Liliana is an actively great card now and that opens up some space because once you start with four Lilianas then you get to run a bunch of cool cards around the Liliana especially creature heavy decks that benefit from her Minus two ability, that sort of thing. So I, I don't know. I I think standard remains healthy, and all of the games we watched were close and cool, except for some of the hazard games.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure. I think that the all of the games were like super decision intensive and and just very interesting, and that's just where I want to be at standard. So yeah, definitely. You know, there you go.
0: Cool. Um, I guess we'll talk about draft for just a minute. I don't. I don't I think there's that many insane things to talk about. I mean, Sam Black's deck one was was very cool and fun to watch, but I don't think that's going to happen yeah. to you very much in this format.
1: Right, yeah. Sometimes the more interesting things are the things that kind of break the mold on what we expect, right? right. So,
0: And and I mean, yeah. this is a format where you can do that because of the presence of Oasis Ritualist and Manolith is actually a pretty playable card. So, so you can do neat things in this format, and it's very possible. But we also mm-hmm. saw some of these blue-red decks that that really punish doing neat things, so got to be careful with it.
1: Right, for sure. Yeah, uh, and, you know, as far as the other draft stuff, the, the blue-red deck that we were talking about a lot before, um, we didn't happen to see anybody draft that, but uh, I think that our lens of the Pro Tour is a little limited <clears throat> to just kind of the drafts that they happen to highlight for coverage, right? Yeah. Um, So I'm sure that that deck existed because uh, it it looked like a lot of the pros were very aware that it existed and were drafting accordingly, right? Right. Um, Prioritizing the two drops and prioritizing the early interaction and stuff. So,
0: yeah. And and it's very powerful. Like even PV's deck, uh, his blue red deck that just didn't didn't look that good, but you know, like he wielded three crash throughs, uh, which is a key key component of the deck, and you know, just was able
1: to get there against people pretty hard. Uh, so mm. I'm still pretty high on it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I unfortunately won't be able to do much drafting of this format moving forward uh, just because of all the constructed tournaments I'm going to, but right. um, this, I've heard from a lot of people that this draft format in particular has been very fun and very rewarding, yeah. so it, it's, uh, a cool it's always good to
0: see. The, yeah. the games are extremely interactive I've found, uh, and and you never really know what's around the corner. Like, I definitely have felt that I'm winning a game and then my opponent plays a God Pharaoh's Gift and I am losing that game very badly.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that cover will do that for sure.
0: <laughs> cool format. But yeah, unfortunately, not a lot of limited on the SCG Tour. So got to focus on what you got to focus on.
1: Yeah, for me personally, at least.
0: So that's modern right now, right?
1: So this weekend is Syracuse. I've uh, been playing a lot of modern. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chris, you know that I always try to play the best deck, right? And I think that in modern right now, the best deck is considered to be, uh, Grixis, Shadow. Sure. Um. Although that's fallen off a little bit, but, but I,
0: I probably still the best deck.
1: Right. Um, in terms of like percentages, I think that Affinity has actually turned to being the best deck, um, in terms of just like results over the past couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, either on Magic Online or in person. Affinity um, just continues to dominate, kind of going against the previous trend of, you know, it's good for a week, and then it's bad for a week, and then it's good for a week. It's just, like, had consistent results over the course of um, it existing, which is pretty mm-hmm. sweet to see. But uh, but I've been, I've been looking at a couple of different options um, because I just haven't really been able to win as much with Grixis, particularly on Magic Online. And I think that Magic Online is... Definitely a little more um, metagamed, where people are willing to just kind of put in hosers for the deck that they're going to see a lot of. And Grixis is definitely one of those decks that you're going to see a lot of. So what are you Um,
0: you seeing people do against it?
1: So you'll see a lot of um, mono-white Death taxes decks with Mirren Crusaders that you can't beat. Or you see a lot of Engineered Explosives or Graveyard Hate. Uh, the, the funny thing about Grixis is that even though it is kind of the quote unquote Jund deck of the format right now, there are just some angles that you can attack it at that are, that the the Jund style decks are supposed to be very resilient to. But when somebody casts a Rest in Peace against you and you're playing Grixis, that's just really bad, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And, it, like, it turns off a lot of your strategies, and then all of a sudden you're just super dependent on r- resolving your Death Shadow in particular and winning with that. And, you know, there are only four Death Shadows in the deck, and sometimes you just don't see any, and you're yeah. stuck with a bunch of, you know, Germag Anglers in your hand, so.
0: Yeah, and then their Path uh, of Exiles only have to target Death Shadow and not anything else.
1: Right, exactly. So, I don't know, just in my experience, um, and... This was probably going to be different in the live tournaments itself, but people are just ready to play against that deck, and they know how to play against it, and it's just kind of not something that I'm interested in playing this weekend in particular. Mm-hmm. So one of the decks that I was kind of focusing on a little bit has been Titan Shift. Okay. Um, it's a Valkyrie deck that's playing Prime Primeval Titans and Scapeshift. Shift, Mm-hmm. Uh and it's just red, green, efficiently ramping up to those spells and uh and casting scapeshift and primeval titan. So I was that deck and I was playing some stock lists, and it looked like for the moment all the stock lists look pretty much similar, where they were running four scapeshifts, four titans, two summoners packs, and then a smattering of ramp spells, but they were also playing they also had a bunch of flex slots. And in those flex slots, they were playing things like Engineer Explosives, Relic of Progenitus, kind of those things that you're seeing geared against uh, Death Down in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of like an illustration of that. But uh, I was just kind of confused at why they had so many interactive pieces in the main deck of this scapeshift Shift deck. Right. Um, they were running, it was like two Relics and three Bolts and one Engineer Explosives. In the main deck of this pretty linear Valakut deck. Interesting. Um, right,
0: because the deck really takes off once and, you have
1: a Valakut active, even if you're not right. So and, and once you like ramp to a certain number of lands, then you know you can just turn your lands into bolts and kill their stuff. Right. Um, so I figured that the faster you could do that, the better. And then the other thing that I saw that really kind of got my gears turning uh, when I was kind of going through some Titan Shift decks was there was a modern iq in manchester and it was won by a mubashar shah i'm probably butchering his name that's Um, all right well i hope you
0: can forgive us
1: uh yes so essentially he's playing a titan shift and he played three hour of promise in the deck Ooh. okay um yeah so i was immediately very interested in what was going on there and But the the rest of the deck looked very similar to the decks that I had been playing before. He had two Relic Progenius in the main deck, one Prismatic Omen, where I was kind of running two Prismatic Omens. Mm-hmm. But uh, other than that, he still had the four Lightning Bolts in the main and all the stuff. But the the fact that he had Our Promise in the deck just really piqued my interest. And like that could just be another really good payoff card for this deck. Right, so... they're
0: expecting you to cast Titan on six, but if you can
1: kind of cast Titan on five... That's a very... It's, yeah, it's just a Titan trigger, right? Our promise is just a Titan trigger. And uh, I knew that kind of like looking back at all of the games that I played with this deck, and I've been playing this deck a lot over the past week, I may have only attacked with Primeval Titan like, I don't know, five or six times mm-hmm. over like three or four leagues. Yeah. Uh, so it's just not that necessary to attack with Primeval Titan. Right. Uh, you just titan is just kind of really there for his initial trigger and then that initial trigger gets you going so just having another card that's less mana and does the same thing seemed super powerful to me because you could you could just find your valakus with the uh, with the of promise and that and that will just get your ball rolling so I really wanted to look at um, a Titan shift deck that was playing just like really all-in on this ramp strategy playing a lot of ramp spells the card that I knew interacted very well with Hour of Promise was Prismatic Omen. Because if you play or get a Valkyrie into play with a Valkut, with a Prismatic Omen in play, then the Valkyrie will trigger off of itself. Yeah. So if you have a Prismatic Omen in play, and then you play your fifth land, and then you cast Hour of Promise, that's just 12 damage. And then now all of your land drops are going to be 6 damage apiece. Sure. Um, which is often just good enough, right?
0: Well, it's a lot um, more value than most. People and then the ready. other card that I figured, <laughs> right? Yes,
1: uh, for sure. And then the other piece that I kind of wanted to throw in the deck was something that people have kind of moved away from, which is uh, the Colony Heart Expedition. Yeah, I mean, I was I was gonna it's the bring that land. up.
0: If you have more ways to get two lands straight into play, and and you're just ramping a little harder, right, And have yeah. fewer, few, less air in your deck, it seems more powerful.
1: Right. So there there's some times where you you have your Prismatic Omen in play you have a colony heart expedition in play and then you just like play a ramp spell play fetch land trigger your expedition three times and then crack it and then all of a sudden that on its own is dealing like 12 damage to your opponent yeah. um if you if you have the valkuts already in play right so the deck just seemed like super resilient and uh, i just threw all these ramp pieces i'm playing three prismatic omens and four uh colony heart expeditions in this deck and because and i think that's something that people kind of forgot about because in the past, abrupt decay has been a very real, but that just really hasn't been the case anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of nobody's playing abrupt case in in any of the like super popular decks right now. Right, right. So I threw all these in the deck, and uh, f- with four um, hour of promise as well, and Whoa. I've just been rushing with this deck on moto. Okay, well, I think I'm you're... currently like, what's up?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm just saying you got to ship me that list then because I, I I that sounds like a lot of fun to me.
1: <laughs> Yes, no, absolutely. Uh I'm currently 11 and 0 on competitive leagues okay, with a solid solid. Um solid. because this is something that I I started working on last night and it just seems very insane. Uh there's no interactive pieces in the main deck. So your your game one against something with like Leon and Arbiters pretty bad, but um, post board you get um three bolts and two angers and two engineer explosives. So you just have a lot of uh you you have the capability of interacting postport if that's something that you want to do. Yeah. But yeah, I think that Our Promise might have just put this deck over the top a little bit. Um, Interesting. That in combination of the the three prismatic Goman for Heart Expedition package that it has. It just has so many ways of dealing all of that damage with Valkut that kind of the the red-green shift deck is known for, but uh, I, I don't know, I think that we just have so many payoff spells now that um, uh, uh, this deck might just kind of be the real deal. And I, 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 I plan on playing this deck in Syracuse this weekend.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I uh, yeah. I mean, just this is the note that I had written about the mo- our modern topic for the podcast was the only thing I know about modern right now is that I, I don't really want to play Living End right now because everybody's fighting death shadow by playing chalices and graveyard hate but i wonder if there's some sort yep. of linear combo deck that that stuff doesn't hit and so it sounds like that's kind of what you've you you you've come across is just a linear deck attacking the format at an angle that people aren't really sideboarding heavily against and it's crushing all the sort of like value decks that are beating death shadow
1: right yeah um yeah the the i think the only matchup that i would consider to be unfavored would be the mono white dev taxes deck sure but I have been beating it on Magic Online with this deck, just, just because board, uh, I just, I just know how to sequence around or... Lean mm. and an Arbiter, and I have a decent board plan against it. And Anger of the Gods is just very good against them. Sure. If they get a um, Aether Vial in play on three and have Flickwisp, they can really do a lot of stuff to mess with you. Sure. Um, right, because Valakid uh, has
0: an intervening if clause.
1: Yes, well, so there's that, and so they can, if you're skip shifting for like seven lands and trying to 18 them, mm-hmm. they can just nap under your mountains, and right. then you only do three. Um, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty unfortunate. Not if that's right. um, Or they can just like move into their own instep, violin, flicker wisp hit your land, and then you just don't have it for your turn, or they can do it on your upkeep or something. Like I've been beating a lot of, um, at least back before I was playing the our promised version is sec, I was playing the, just kind of the more traditional version. And back then, I was beating all of the, kind of the less experienced uh, Death Taxes players. Um, so I played, it was, I had this funny league where I played against three mono-white Death and Taxes players in a row. Oh, and I God. beat two of them. And then the last guy's name was uh, Death and Cat Mix. Oh, that's a problem. And so so he clearly had played a lot of Death and Taxes <laughs> yes. and knew what he was doing. And he just rolled me with, uh, Uh, all these flickerwisp plays of just like you know go into my own instep flickerwisp bounce your land you can't have it for that turn um next turn flickerwisp my own flickerwisp after it attacks so that it comes in in his instep and bounces my land that i can't for that turn it's just like okay (laughs) this this guy knows what's going on and i'm I'm just very far behind you know had i had bolts or something to interact early uh i think that i definitely had shots in those games Mm -hmm. um
0: Right, but the strength uh, of your so, deck is in
1: not having those in the starting sixty, really. So right, in in the in the main deck, I'm it's it's kinda funny I'm playing this mono green main deck with a bunch of mountains. <laughs>
0: with, with all mountains, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is which is kind of scapeshift in a nutshell. But yeah, it's uh the the main deck is just mono green ramp stuff into payoff. I'm running four scapeshifts, four primordial titans, four hour of promise, one summoner's packed in the main. Um and then the rest of the deck is just essentially lands and ramp 27 lands four search for tomorrow four tribe elder uh, i'm running so one thing that i see a lot of people do is run four far seek but i'm actually a pretty big fan of three far seek and one explore mm-hmm. because explore is one of those cards that's just it's very good if you already have a lot of lands in your hand but if you're if you've got multiple exp in your hand then you're just going to run out of lands in your hand and it's not going to be nearly as effective it's mm-hmm. going to be a two minute draw one sure so, but that first explorer I found is just very solid a lot of the time. Gotcha. So I'm running one explorer, three far seek, and that's something that I've been very happy with. I've got the one of wood elves that I feel like all the titan shifts players have moved towards. Sometimes wood elves just gives you the option of doing some play late with scape shift uh, that none of the other ramp spells would be able to do. Like if you only have two green sources and you're going into your sixth land turn, you can't like. Play a tribeeld or crack it for a mountain, and then cascade shift because you only have two green sources. But right. you can play wood elves, Get the find a green land. source, untap,
0: yeah,
1: and then play your scapeshift from there. So I think that wood elves is just like a very important thing to have, just it just exist as one of in the deck, so you can summoners hack for it when you need to or something like that. Yeah, although you're a little um, lighter on summoners. But pace. yeah, other than that, yeah, we, I'm only running one, but they were only running two before, so yeah. I think it's probably fine, uh, because it, it's it was kind of one of those like utility spells where mostly better for your bullets postboard like I'm am n- never going to leave home without two obsidian Bailoff at least and uh, a couple other bullets in the sideboard but I'm d- I'm definitely running less bullets than the uh the other decks were because I had to find space for the cuz you you do need some number of lightning bolts in in the 75 and some number of Angers, and these were kind of main deck slots before where they just weren't anymore. So, I had to put a lot of that stuff in the sideboard, and I lost, like, a tireless tracker because of that, which is pretty sad about, because I I often like having that. In in the previous uh, version of Scape Shift, you could go into, like, a really grindy uh, plan, particularly against Affinity, where you would have postboard, like, your tireless tracker to, like, re-up on value while you were bolting their stuff, angering their stuff, and I ran two ancient grudges before, but because I had to cut down on slots and because I'm more of an all-in plan now, um, I cut the two ancient grudges for one spell that's just more high impact. I cut it for a Shatterstorm, yeah, which I think is just you know also just insane and you probably just win if you cast against affinity, yeah. And you
0: still got, but, um, you still got because there, and I was running less
1: slots for that. Yeah, right. You still have boltinagers, so it's still some some stuff there. So cool. Well, but I- yeah, uh, super high on this deck right now. Um, yeah, I'm pumped into it a excited shot. It this that sounds awesome. Yeah, right. Um, I, I, I brewed it up last night, and uh, my friend Jeremy came over and we were playing some, and he's played more Scapeshift in the past than I have. So he was kind of like telling me some stuff about how to play it, and he helped me brew it up. Um, and we just immediately 502 leagues in a row. And we were just <laughs> like, yeah, uh, this might be real. <laughs> well, good. Our oh, good. Yeah. Our promise looked very good. My friend was pretty down on our promise initially. But then we cast it a couple times, and it just did everything that it needed to do. And it was pretty much just like having a 5-mana primeval Titan. Yeah. Um,
0: Too bad there's no way to slot Deserts into that deck.
1: Yeah, the other Claws on Our Promise is just never coming up. But uh, I thought that was, uh, you know, it was was pretty sweet to see um, that just like had the success that it's had. So um, I'm excited. I'm going to keep on testing with it. Um, I think that I still have a lot to learn about like sequencing the deck and everything sure because there's so many weird lines like sometimes you get your conley heart expedition on three counters and you have the opportunity to sacrifice it in your opponent's end step but you just don't and you untap with it and then you cast your hour for balakuts and then you pop your expedition yeah um so there's just, like, a lot of, like, weird counterintuitive lines that are just trying to maximize the number of Valka triggers that you're hitting. Every time I play the deck, I still discover some more new, sweet stuff that you can do with it. Yeah, um, and it's really, it's really tough to,
0: like, like, when you have to get the forest or, or whatever and... Just you know, the, these things are are difficult decisions that that can have repercussions like many turns down the line.
1: I've never played yeah. with the
0: deck, but I've definitely beaten people who have gotten the wrong land on turn two or whatever because they got right. that land. Yeah.
1: Right. Um, yeah. And then like knowing when you have when you're allowed to have to like fetch a forest or whatever to save life. Yeah. Um, and also being able to recognize, particularly now where you're kind of almost less all-in on the scapeshift plan in particular. Like, if you're casting scapeshift, then it doesn't matter how many forests you've got. But a lot of the time, you're just, like, squeaking out these Valka triggers through um, your normal ramp spells. And Mm -hmm. when you're doing that, you just can't afford to get any forests, really, because you just need all of your lands to be mountains. Yeah. And and that Um, game plan is honestly where the the draw uh, of the deck is to me.
0: Like, when you get to that point in the game where, like, every single card you draw is lightning bolt or multiple lightning bolts like that that feels really good
1: yes for sure um uh and i I think that that kind of gives this deck a a very good resiliency against like the control decks that exist right now um prismatic omen in particular is uh yeah i guess i want to take a minute to talk about that card in particular where i'm running three of that card which is a lot considering it does literally nothing in multiples yes um but uh, there's just a lot of decks right now that 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 card in particular is very, very good against. Um, If you have that card in play, and you have a Valkit in play, um, then every ramp spell you draw is going to be Bolt or Bolts, and every fetch land that you play is going to be two Bolts um, off of one Valkit, because the initial land coming into play is a trigger, and you can fetch it for another trigger. Um, So there there have just been some times where I've played against a control deck, and like played a turn to Prismatic Omens, and then had some, I had two Valakids in play, um, and then I played my sixth land as a fetch land, and then I cracked it, and all of a sudden they took 12 damage off of me, <laughs> not casting any spells, right? Yep. Um, yeah, tough to so, interact
0: with. Even if they've got Spreading Seas, like, it, it's really hard to Spreading Seas all of your Valakids.
1: Right. Yeah. And, you mm-hmm. know, Spreading Seas is good against this deck, and, you know, hitting the Valkut is, is a very real thing that they have access to. Sure. Um, but particularly now that we're playing just so many payoff cards, like, you know, your four Prime four Scape ships, four Hours, um, all being able to have access to find your valkits, Uh, you can just set up, you can just kind of, like, sit on those and make your land drops and play this game where you're out outmanning your control opponent. hmm Um, and these control decks are like the. I'm mainly talking about like the blue white control deck that exists right now. Yeah. Um, and then there's like a Jess Guy, like Tempo Yeast deck. But this is more for the blue white control deck that just like can't close out the game very well. You could just afford to play draw go with them for a while. And, and then eventually, uh, set up a turn where you can cast like a. Uh, a primeval titan and a escape shift, or a escape shift and a, a an hour of promise, and a lot of times they're cryptic command. They're just not going to be able to up, double up on that thing mm-hmm. with the mana they have available. So makes sense. So yeah, uh, that's my spiel on this deck. Um, very excited to continue to tune it for this weekend in Syracuse. Um, pretty locked in on it. I've been cool. having a lot of success with it so far. So yeah, have you have um, you
0: noticed anything else in particular just about the format in general? you know what people are playing i mean i know we talked about like death and taxes and that the the format has definitely kind of warped around i think last time we talked about how the the format's warping to these like kind of mid-rangey decks because they're strong against death yeah i mean
1: kind of ignoring the metagame breakdowns or whatever that you see online uh and just going by my experience against what i've been playing it with in particular there's been a lot of the mono white death taxes deck Mm -hmm. the flicker wisp um version of that deck i think is Super strong, and I think that I kind of underestimated it at first, but I think that it's definitely proving itself to be a very real um, quantity okay. in modern. I've been seeing an appropriate number of Grixis Death Shadow. I've been seeing a lot of Eldrazi Tron. I've been seeing a lot of Burn. I've been seeing a lot of Affinity, um,
0: which are kind of the standard. Like, uh, I've been big seeing four, a lot of this. like no matter where the format is at. Yeah, right I think now. those.
1: Yeah, those are the big four. So I'm not really surprised to see those. Um, I've been seeing a lot of Blue Eye Control is another deck that might mm-hmm. not be on your radar as much. A lot of Gift Storm. Like, those are, the, I guess, those are just kind of off the top of my head, the decks that I've been playing against a sure. lot. Um, a few Titan Shift Mirrors, n- not like a whole ton. And uh, I played a few Titan Shift Mirrors with my new build. Like, I think, like, two of the matches were Titan Shift Mirrors out of the two leagues that I played. Uh-huh. And I just rolled them. Yeah, it our probably seems like close. a mirror breaker for sure. Uh Yeah, I'm just so much faster than they are. And they've got all these, like, lightning bolts and engineer yep. explosives in their main deck. And like relics of progenitus, and I'm just like got more ramp spells and more payoff stuff, and I was just always a turn or two ahead of them. Felt pretty ridiculous. Storm really bad. Storm has been definitely the deck that I've struggled uh, with, uh, or struggled against the most. And my plan isn't great there. My plan is just to have relics and uh, mm. bolts and anger the gods to try to deal with their dudes. Yeah. Um, the secret to playing against storm is that if as long as you kill their they're too many creature then it takes them much much longer right. to be able to generate anything that kills you so just maximizing under the number of cards that can answer that is very important uh i i've been able to have some number of success against that but definitely and uh i i, I only played with against it once um with this new deck but i, I had played against it a lot with the, with the old Scapeshift deck so uh but yeah, not being interactive at all in the main deck is definitely a problem yeah. in that matchup.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, it's
1: modern, like you gotta
0: take your bad matchups because they're gonna exist no matter what you're playing.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm trying to think of anything else that I've played against that was kinda cool. There have been some you know the old collect company humans deck. Yeah. That existed. There have been some of those decks, but a little less all in on the like collect company stuff and more just a little more death and taxi style. But it was definitely like green, white, humans. Um, so
0: Thalia decks, basically.
1: Yeah, essentially just Thalia decks. Yeah. Um, and and those decks felt like pretty bad matchups, but I was still able to steal the games by either being able to get ahead on mana. Um, the thing that the humans Thalia decks kind of struggle with is less disruptive elements, and I could just play through with Thalia. That's not really that big of a problem. Mm-hmm. So I definitely won a couple of games there where I was just able to like play a turn six Primeval Titan and then they just died because I was able to like bolt two of their things or whatever. Yeah. Uh, or not turn six, but six mana. Right, right. <laughs> it, not... That's often like turn three. You know? Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's been my experience in modern. Um, I, I'm interested to see how Death Shadow does kind of moving forward. I think that it's probably, I think that modern in general is adapting pretty well. Which is awesome to see. So I don't think that that deck. I mean, I, I think it'll probably be like a healthy tier one deck for the remainder for for just kind of the foreseeable future. But in terms of it just being the obvious default choice for any given modern tournament, I don't see that lasting as long.
0: Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, I like especially online. Like people know how to play Magic, and they definitely are adapting to it. So I I, I definitely agree.
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. And I think that that's probably more real online than it will be in person. So, Exas mm-hmm. Shadow might still just be the best choice for a paper tournament. But I'm very excited about this Valakid deck, and I think I might have busted it. So, cool. Uh, gonna run that.
0: Well, I definitely hope to see you on camera. <laughs> but,
1: <laughs> yeah, triggering sure. some Valakids. Um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell I'll tell Nick Miller that I've got some a sweet brew. <laughs> I've got some some Hour Promises <laughs> in my modern deck. Maybe he'll put me on camera. <laughs> yeah,
0: definitely do that. Do that so so I can watch you and. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, oh, yeah, one thing that we didn't mention uh, that, that I wanted to say. Um, sure. So there's a, something going around a little bit on Twitter. It hasn't super blown up yet, um, but it's kind of interesting. Adam Ragsdale, a winner is you. Uh, Canadian player, good guy, like kind of has been around for, for a while. Played against an opponent, and I'm not, I don't remember what round it was, but later in the tournament. Uh, so you're
1: talking about the Pro Tour?
0: Yeah, in, in the in the PT.
1: Um, okay, this past weekend.
0: Yeah, so the, just this past weekend, uh, later in the tournament, he played against, and I'm, I'm going to mess up this name, it's a Korean name, um, Jiung Se, standard portion of the tournament. His opponent, uh, notably playing uh, Anime Girl Sleeves with a matching Anime Girl play mat, uh, but okay. he, his opponent's on the play, turn one plays, uh, comes into play Tapped Land. Turn two, plays another comes into play tap land, and magma sprays Adam's uh, crit breaker. Turn three, he plays uh, beneath the sands, and gets a mountain out of his deck, puts it into play, is shuffling his deck, and then drops his deck on the table, sort of like towards Adam. Adam hands him the half of his deck that sort of fell towards him, he shuffles it for a second and gives it to Adam, and then Adam notices that his hand is in a single pile of cards on the table. So he asks him how many cards he has in his hand, and he spreads it out, and it's five cards. But it should only be four cards at this point, because he was on the play, and he's made a land drop every turn, and he's cast two spells. So he, he had an extra card in his hand. So he calls over a judge. Uh, the judge determines that they're going to do the Thoughtseize thing, and he immediately flips over his hand. Uh, and I don't know exactly, like, you know, like this, this was described in a, a, a chat, an IRC chat that I saw. And uh, so it it seemed kind of like his opponent was like relieved at the call that they were going to do the seize for having an extra card in a hidden zone rather than, you know, investigating further. So Adam appeals because it it seems very, very fishy. The head judge upholds the ruling um, and it turns out that this had also happened, not this identical sequence, but in an earlier match in the tournament. Um, This same guy had drawn eight cards in his opening hand and didn't say anything about it until several turns in when his opponent noticed he had an extra card. And then so he just got thought seized and then got to keep playing. So kind of a very fishy thing happening uh, a couple of times in the same PT. Interesting to me that somebody would try to get away with something like that. And maybe, I mean, maybe he was just nervous playing in his first PT, not noticing stuff or whatever. But, I mean, having an extra card in your hand in a single stack in front of you, and I, I don't know, man. Yeah, what you've described to
1: me are cheats that I am aware of yeah. um, in, in the past. Is that, uh, you know, shuffling your deck through some sort of search effect and then putting a card in your hand uh, is something that I know to look out for. I think that kind of the bottom line for through this story is that the sad reality is that I'm just kind of not surprised at all to hear the story sure. because cheaters exist in magic and it's just something that as a magic player, you have to protect yourself against. Um, so it sounds like his opponent did everything appropriately in that he uh, was vigilant enough to ask how many cards at his, were in his opponent's hand when he noticed something fishy going on with the deck and uh, and got it recorded through the judge. The I guess the sad reality at the moment is that you just have to be as vigilant as possible with your opponent and how many cards they have in their hand. Um, being able to do a quick count on your own in your head is an important skill that I have learned to do myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just counting the number of permanents in play, cards in hand, and essentially like cards drawn that game. Yeah. You can do that by counting permanents in play, graveyard in hand, and then associating that with the turn number that you know it is. And if that's the appropriate number of cards, then you're fine, but... Um, if, if you do like a quick count and it feels off or it is off by a certain number, then definitely worth calling a judge for some, for something like that.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I, and I guess that's gotta Uh, just be
1: the takeaway here is be, be vigilant, but yeah. And I I do think it is good that you brought that up because I think that it's important to just kind of tell people that, um, this is something that, you know, people, people do cheat in magic and it's something that you have to watch out for um uh you know i i would love to take the the rosy stance of uh you know every nobody does these things anymore or whatever people are people are just gonna you know people have different morals and people are gonna believe that it's you know for whatever reason that that they can get away with something like that so um you just have to be vigilant about it and uh understand that that's something you need to look out for and make sure that you always even if you have like a slimmer of 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 questionability about something your opponent did, just always call the judge get something recorded on the judge's end because that's the only way that we're going to be able to get the cheaters out of our game is by giving them a track record of doing something sketchy to the point where somewhere down the line a judge can make the decision of this person is probably cheating uh because if if that happens once and it's called out once then the judge really has no grounds to be like oh well you cheated the judge is always going to give them the benefit of the doubt the first couple of times it happens but so the only way that we can actually remove that problem player from the community is by calling the judge every single time to make sure that that behavior is recorded to the point where somewhere down the line that player is going to get caught again and again and again and then the judge is going to be able to look at their history and be like the, in this situation, we're going to say that it's too likely that this was intentional on your behalf, so we're going to do something about it.
0: Right, and and that's the key um, thing is establishing that intent, which is very difficult, right. and almost the only way to do that is to show that pattern of of suspicious things
1: happening. Right, right. Um, so yeah, so just yeah. another thing to look out for, I guess. <laughs> yeah,
0: kind of a sad counterpoint to like um, our
1: first the first thing we talked about today
0: with with how. You know, important magic has been to a lot of people, and this is, you know, the darker
1: side of the game. But yeah, but it it... well, but I think that's it's in some ways very similar to that point where magic in a certain context is uh, about people just Mm -hmm. as much as it is about the card game itself, and um, and people cheating is a real thing associated with that kind of that concept of that like you know that's a very at least on their end, an an emotional experience where, you know, it's just something that had to do with like them as a person that you have to deal with, as opposed to uh, just the cards themselves. Um, Like I've said this a lot. I, you know, I wish that everything was just like magic online um, rigid and inflexible and you couldn't, you can't like cheat in those ways. uh, That's just not the case. And you have to deal with people you know, flipping over cards on accident or drawing extra cards on accident or not on accident. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's just like a, a reality of being able to play Magic in a live setting. So, uh, yeah, that, that's just the other end of Magic being about people just as much as it is about the card game itself.
0: Yeah, you're right. Um, I, I think so. you're
1: right. Is there any, anything else we want to talk about?
0: Uh, I think those are all the topics that I wanted. I
1: mean, congrats yeah. again to
0: PVDR. PV, he's doing it. Yeah, good, good job, yeah. man. You're very impressive. We're all yeah it's amazing
1: cool uh, uh, yeah very excited that he was able to take down another one it, it's it definitely I, I left with the especially with Sam Party and PV being in the finals of that tournament it, I definitely walked away from that tournament feeling like the good guys got there you know what I mean right <laughs> um, like these are like two names that we associate as like good characters in the community um, and it's just really heartwarming to see them do well so. Yeah,
0: yeah, Go- guys who contribute a lot of um, content and want to help other people get good at Magic, and and it's it's cool. Right, Th- they're the guys you want to see succeed, definitely.
1: Cool. Well, then I guess
0: yeah, that's a wrap. Uh,
1: all
0: right. Well, thanks for joining us. Um. Oh yeah. So we got a. If, if you guys want to follow us, uh, we got a Twitter at MTG underscore Grindcast, or follow us individually. I am uh, at Dr. Pizzazz, um, and Collins here. And I am at Collins Mullen. Yeah. And. Uh, That'll do it. Thanks for joining us.
1: Sweet. All right.